Check out Unpacking Israeli History podcast. From the history of infamous terror groups, Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Hello, and podcast stuff. Cool, Margaret, host, Bill Joy. <laughs> today, uh, <laughs> oh, today we've got Katie Stoll as our guest. That was the most, like, I've been like, oh my God, the world is, is that was so Robert Evans of you. <laughs> oh no, I take it all back. <laughs> Shit! <laughs> we all get there some, sooner or later. It happens. No, don't, don't feel bad about it. Maybe feel bad a little bit. <laughs> I, I mean, I tell cum jokes bit. now, so oh, after working true. with Robert and Cody for a while. Uh, yeah, well, that's um, that's good because this entire no, I actually I don't tell cum jokes. I don't think yeah, I do. I'm sorry. I actually don't really feel comfortable with it, but more so than I did no. before I started working with those boys. Yeah. I had this whole thing where I'm like telling all this story about people should be able to say whatever they want, make talk dirty, and I'm like, but I'm still kind of a proper lady about some shit, you know. No, I really relate I to that. I don't like fart jokes. I don't like poop jokes. Like none of that. Mm-mm. Not like, you know, I don't want to like see those people, like, locked up or anything. I respect your right to 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 do those jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. I I'm defend to death your com- right to. Yeah. Anyways, this is, this is the uh, cool people who did cool stuff, and the other, uh, that's Katie Stoll, right? Right, Margaret? Yes, and that is Sophie, who is our producer. Hi, Hi Sophie. Hi. Hi. It is us. Yep. And Ian, who is uh, not present but is listening, is our editor, and he rules because he cuts out all the awkward, weird pauses, like where my brain turns off because we're somewhere between 1 and 15 years into a pandemic, and our brains don't work the same anymore. Yep. So thanks. No, they sure don't, do they? Shout out Ian. So today it is part two of our two-part series on the fight for birth control. And if you haven't listened to the first part, you should probably go listen to the first part. So all that stuff from the first episode, all the fuckery and people fighting and dying for the right to control their bodies and to not be possessions of their husbands, that's the precursor to what gets called the birth control movement in the United States. They actually didn't even use the word birth control until 1914, but I'll get to that later. The birth control movement in the United States, started in New York City in the 1910s. And I want to start with my favorite of these advocates, Emma Goldman. If Anthony Comstock is Anthony fucking Comstock, derisively. And he is. Yes. <laughs> Emma Goldman is 
Emma fucking Goldman, but excitedly. Okay. Emma fucking Goldman. Yeah. Emma fucking Goldman was a, a Jewish anarchist, an immigrant from Russia, a midwife, a groundbreaking feminist, a famous orator who scared the piss out of cops and governments everywhere she went, and basically the person who did the most work to say, you can actually enjoy life and be a revolutionary. My One of my favorite of her quotes in order to open this little section is, I want freedom, the right to self-expression, and everybody's right to beautiful, radiant things. I like that. Emma Goldman was not born in 1969, despite my apparent compulsive desire as a person writing the scripts for her own podcast to type in 19 instead of 18. Emma (laughs) Goldman was born in 1869 in what's now Lithuania, but was then the Russian Empire. Her, Her mom's first husband had died of, Katie, can you guess what he died of? It's the 19th century. TB? He did. Oh, he died of tuberculosis. The that first marriage, her her mother's first marriage had been for love. The second marriage to Emma's dad was arranged by the family. Emma's dad sucked. Uh, he used to whip her. Uh, she went to school where teachers would beat her hands with rulers. Uh, she got another teacher fired when he tried to sexually assault her, and she physically fought him off. Which rules? I mean, it does wow. not rule that she had to do that. But no, no. You know, so her family moved around a lot. Her dad opened lots of failed businesses and kind of like classic shitty dad mode. Emma worked a bunch of jobs as a kid. She wanted to keep going to school, but her dad set her French books on fire and shouted, quote, girls do not have to learn much. All a Jewish daughter needs is to know how to prepare gefilte fish, cut noodles fine and give the man plenty of children. He sounds like a good dad. Yeah, good dad. This oh, is actually love, an episode love, all about it. <laughs> I love a good dad. They're so hot, yeah. you know, a cute, <laughs> good dad. Oh, my God, right? Like, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So into um, that. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's funny because the, the bar that we ask, like, like, good dad is one of the easiest bars to pass. And it works on me. When, I, when you actually read about a good dad, you're like, that guy's amazing. I love well, him I so much, you know. And it's so unfair. I know. Because I mean, I'm not a mother, but from what I understand of motherhood, it's really hard and women get criticized so unfairly for their mothering skills whereas a dad just has to tell his daughter to shut up and make the gefilte fish and all of a sudden he's dad of the year, <laughs> you know? Sexist. <laughs> All you have to do is not be this guy and you're a good yeah, dad. Yeah, exactly. Um, the bar's on the floor. Please lift your feet and don't <laughs> scuffle. So she doesn't go to school. Instead, she studies on her own. And she studies those podcast alumni, the Russian nihilists. She really likes the Russian nihilists. She especially likes the ones who had just recently killed the czar. Sure. Then facing rising anti-Semitism, some of which came out of the fact that nihilists, including a Jewish nihilist, had killed the czar. There's pogroms happening, and her family emigrates to Rochester, New York, in in waves. First her sisters go, then Emma goes. Her parents are like, no, you can't go. And she's like, fuck you, I'm going to go. And then I think she threatens to throw herself in the river if they don't let her go. So she goes. And then her parents and brother came soon after because Russia, not a really good place to be Jewish right then. And she gets a job as a seamstress in Rochester, New York. She marries this impotent dude who quickly turns into an abusive asshole in the classic I'll kill myself if you leave me way. Yeah, yeah. 
So she left him. And good for her. Yeah. And then at one point she actually goes back to him. Did he do the, it? No. No, she went um, back to him. But she only goes back to him for like three months and then she's like, fuck this, I'm out again. Good girl. Yeah. And her parents, however, uh, kick her out of the house for being a slut for divorcing her husband. Okay. So I'm going to include mom in the not good parent mode really quickly. Yeah, that's not great. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know about their home life, how yeah. much power. I mean, if that's what that's the true. father believes of a woman and yeah. what her role is, I can imagine that her mom wouldn't have much say in the decision. That's a that's a really good point. But I don't know. Yeah. She could just be a bitch. She'd be a fucking cunt. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I just love to say the word cunt. I think it's fantastic (laughs) and so satisfying. It is really satisfying word. It just, all of those consonants, it's nice. It feels good in your mouth. (laughs) Good as fuck. Sorry. I know. That cunt feels good in your mouth. mouth. You can can quote me on it. All right. I concur. (laughs) Okay, so... um, So Emma Goldman gets into, she's a teenager now, she's 16 or something, and she gets into anarchism uh, in the wake of podcast alumni, the Haymarket Affair, in which eight anarchists were put on trial pretty much just for being anarchists in the fight for the eight-hour workday, and four of them were hanged. So Emma's like, okay, this seems cool. So she fucks off to New York City. (laughs) And the first day she's there, she meets the man that she kept around as her friend with occasional benefits for, for decades with mm-hmm. whom she would soon plot a murder. His name is mm. Alexander Berkman, or Sasha for short, and he's all right. He counts as cool people too, and he's bisexual. Definite step up from abusive yeah. husband. Yeah, he sounds like like good people. Yeah, yeah. He, so he's, far. he's good. No, he he's good. He there's like some stuff that you would be like, eh, yeah, whenever she someone had, says and, you know, Yeah, whenever someone says he's good he is he's good i tend to go (laughs) he's not that good is he (laughs) but unfortunately that's why we have to talk about most men in our lives yep we're like he's not bad he means well (laughs) he doesn't get it well i wish he got it anyway that's a different topic (laughs) yeah (laughs) so so Emma Goldman, she falls in with this huge immigrant community of socialists and anarchists on the, the Lower East Side. And all of these folks would hang out on the rooftops of the tenement buildings and they would shout at each other across from rooftop to rooftop in German, Russian and Yiddish about how to build class power and destroy the capitalists and free themselves from the state, which just nice. rules. Like, what a time to be alive, you know? Yeah, I know. Ugh. Yeah. And now I feel like in the last episode, I felt like this too. All of these people I keep imagining, I'm like, yeah, I could have. That's exactly who I would have been. Yeah, and maybe I was. I don't know where I stand on past lives, but I love to fant- I love to daydream about like, yeah, maybe I was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah, it's I I believe in past you. Yeah, I believe in current you as well. Um, I don't know if you speak Thank any you. of those languages, but you should shout them across rooftops if you do, or in languages you do know. So. She's in her early 20s when the Homestead strike happens, which is in June 1892. And I even put the eight in the date right correctly this time. A unionized steel plant was negotiating their contract with their asshole boss, this guy named Henry Clay Frick, who was a huge industrialist at the time. And he 
hates all of his workers. He hates the union. So he locks during negotiations. So they go on strike. So Frick hires some scabs and then some Pinkertons, who are private security, to protect the scabs. And on July 6th, 1892, they have a good old-fashioned 12-hour gunfight. Oh, tw- 12 hours. They must not be very good then. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, it, leaves, <laughs> it leaves seven guards and nine strikers dead, this, this gunfight oh. at the factory. So, so Emma Goldman and her pal, Sasha, she, she called him a pal, not a boyfriend. And they were lovers and friends, but not quite a couple because they were very emphatically their own people. That was a big part of their politics. Yeah. And so they were like, hey, hey, pal, you want to do a murder? <laughs> this guy is up to no good. We, uh, we'll kill this frick asshole. And then all the workers will be like, hooray, the revolution. Let's throw off the chains of capitalist oppression and create a free society based on mutual aid. That's their plan. Wow. No notes. Perfect plan. Solid. What could go wrong? No notes. Yeah. yeah. So they decide that Sasha... It couldn't have possibly gone No, wrong. there's so many steps there that will all go correctly. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. So they decide Sasha is going to do the, the shooting and or stabbing, and Emma is going to do the telling everyone why they did that uh, to rouse the rabble to, you know, throw off the yoke of oppression or whatever. And at this point, Emma Goldman tries sex work to raise the money, but basically what happens... Um, She's street walking and a guy picks her up and takes her to a bar and says, honestly, I don't think this is the job for you. And then <laughs> gives her 10 bucks, which is then, $321 in today's money. So why did you I don't say know. that? That's kind of offensive. I know. I have no idea. But, you know, and then also a lot of that comes from her own writing about her life. Right, too. So there's always sure. the like there's that lens. Yeah. And there's also this thing. And I, I actually think this is probably what happened. But there's this thing that I keep running into where like sex work is written out of history constantly. Yeah. yeah. So many people have or like have had past tense did engaged in sex work. And it sure. is just like not talked about as soon as they do anything else. You know, yep. no one wants to talk about it. Yeah. But they get together their money. I think that um, I think Emma Goldman borrows money from her sister, basically. I don't know if she's like, hey, I want to do a murder. Can I get some money for murder? But Berkman goes, finds Frick in his office, shoots him three times, stabs him once. But the problem here is that Frick isn't just the owner of a steel factory. He's a fucking man of steel or something because he survives. Oh, no. He survives. I was about to say that sounds like overkill, but it wasn't. It was not overkill. Henry Clay Frick lives a long ass time. And this will be shocking to you, I know. The workers weren't like, hooray, we too can take arms against our capitalist overlords. Instead, they were like, oh shit, what the fuck? Oh fuck, we we don't actually want this. This is bad. Oh dang, so people can't just be forced into changing their perspectives like that overnight. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I don't know, I was looking for something <laughs> different. Like, of course you'd be like, Yes, you're liberated. Let's do this. But a lot of people, I'm preaching to the choir, people know. <laughs> you get so limited by your cages. You, yeah. You're afraid to step out and and see because it could be anything out there yeah. or whatever. But like people, people are, are, can be hard to convince to see totally. that they're participating and that the system is not, is fucking them instead of helping them. Totally. Totally. And so this this action, the attentat, I believe they call it, it was an attempt at propaganda of the deed, which was like a the anarchist style at the time at the end of the 19th century, which was um, 
do propaganda by mostly by killing people who are bad, but but by like doing things rather than just talking about things. But but it turns out you can't just show up and kill a guy and have everyone be like, hooray, thanks for killing the guy or whatever, you know, especially if he doesn't die. Yeah, I know. Yeah, actually, I wonder what <laughs> happened. So and this sets back both the labor movement and the anarchist movement, unfortunately. And there's this one guy, Johann Most, who was Emma Goldman's sort of mentor figure, who does a lot of speechifying and he goes around and his whole thing is like revolutionary violence. We need more violence. Violence is the way, you know, it's like his whole fucking deal compared to a lot of the other anarchists at the time. We're like, uh, violence is like maybe necessary, but we're more into mass movements and Johan most like the violence. And then as soon as this assassination happens or attempted attempted assassination happens, happens. Johan most walks it back and is like, oh, it was a bad idea. He never should have done that. And Emma Goldman is in the crowd when he's giving this speech, talking shit on her fucking pal. So she yeah. walks up to the stage with a horsewhip and horsewhips him for talking shit. <gasps> oh my God, that's bold. And then she breaks the horsewhip over her knee, I guess the handle <gasps> of it, throws it at the stage, and I think storms off. And she regrets this later. She's like, I maybe overreacted. Sure, who among us? <laughs> well, that's what she says. Her quote that is basically who among us is, quote, at the age of 23, one does not reason. I mean, that's fairly accurate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I never used a horse whip, but. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're just not as readily available. I mean, you know, you don't. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be like if you used a. No, no one uses clubs <laughs> anymore. Like a club that for your car. Yeah. OK. I think it's I think we all can agree. Fair. Yeah. And do you know what else is fair? I'm looking to see how far into this episode we are. It's fair for us to move to advertising because. Ooh, that was good. It certainly is. Done like a professional. I want to move it back to the the bread and butter of our podcast uh, sponsors and tell you that um, potatoes are fairly easy to grow and other people can also do the growing for you. You don't have to do it yourself. And they're very good for you unless you unless they're not good for you because everyone's bodies are different. Yeah, we metabolize things differently. And there are many varieties of potatoes. It's true. That's such a yeah. good point, Sophie. And so mm-hmm. often overlooked when talking about yeah. potatoes. And also whatever else these other ads are. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about history and what a period we're living through right now, specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. 
But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help you understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week, where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli history wherever you listen to podcasts. Does sleeping hot keep you up at night? Meet the Lisa Chill Collection. These cooling mattresses work like magic with a cool-to-the-touch cover, zoned springs, and comfy foam layers. Say goodbye to restless nights and wake up refreshed. Lisa's Chill Mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers that whisk away heat, so you always sleep just right. These hybrids blend up to 1,032 breathable springs and plush foams for the ultimate cooling and comfort. And the Chill Collection doesn't just feel great, it looks great, too with thoughtful design and pillowy quilt tops. No matter your budget, Lisa has a chill mattress for you. For a limited time, save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. And we are back. We are. And we are talking about how poor Alexander Berkman, who has just shot and stabbed a dude. Baby. he gets. I know. Um, <laughs> he gets sentenced to 22 years in prison. And Okay. While he's in prison, he discovers his bisexuality. He has relationships with fellow prisoners. And he he doesn't like prison. That's like the highlight of prison for him. Um, he Prison fucks him up, honestly. I'm not trying to make light of it. Um, he becomes a prison activist and he fights for conditions for the other prisoners. And be- because yeah. he's constantly doing this, he's constantly in solitary confinement, uh, often yeah. in a straitjacket. Yeah. So his friends do what 19th century anarchists did best, which is digging a tunnel <laughs> they rent a house across the street from the jail and they get to it they they dig through rocky soil they go past some gas main it means they have to start Come putting in ventilation on. yeah no they um yeah the this is another theme of of cool people who did cool stuff is that a ton of people in the 19th century break out of prison by digging tunnels it's fucking wild <laughs> and one of the anarchists hangs out while well, everyone else is digging one person's job is to play piano and sing to cover the sound of people digging. Oh, my God. It's like a cartoon. I know. And could you imagine what that singing <laughs> and played would be like if your sole job is to cover the percussive sounds of digging? <laughs> but speaking of cartoon, unfortunately, on the day before the escape, a random construction had dumped a load of stones in blocking his path to the tunnel. Oh, so he doesn't get out through the tunnel. That is a cartoonish development. <laughs> I know. And then before the construction's cleared and he can get out through the tunnel, some kids sneak into the now empty house and they discover the tunnel. And because they're a bunch of dumb snitch ass kids, they tell the grownups. Idiot kids. And so now the, the tunnel is discovered into the jail 
And there was no proof that it was Berkman who had been trying to escape, but the prison is like, whatever, it was Berkman. It was obviously Berkman. And he, he spends a year in solitary instead of getting out and reuniting with God his pals. damn it. He does get out after 14 years in the end, um, but, you know, legally. And the whole thing had probably been a bad idea. Emma wrote Sasha at one point and said, Acts of violence, except as demonstrations of a sensitive human soul, have proved utterly useless. So okay. in the meantime, while, while Sasha's in jail, Emma Goldman does two things. One, she becomes a midwife. She goes to Vienna and she studies midwifery and nursing. And then she works in the tenements and the immigrant populations of the Lower East Side and later for the middle class U.S. born progressive movement. Wow. And it was partly this work that helped her realize that this sort of all or nothing attitude that a lot of like her male revolutionary comrades had was fucking bullshit because reforms matter. As she helped so many people give birth in terrible conditions, she wrote, I saw that it was a mockery to expect them to wait until the social revolution arrives in order to right injustice. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That you can do tangible things right now, yeah. not just talking about the big ideas. You can help people in their lives right now. Totally. And like, and that's why it matters that we make sure that people have access to abortion and, you know, all of those things. Yeah, like, yes. So... She also becomes the U.S.'s most popular anarchist orator, and she weaves both feminism and aestheticism into her speeches. Uh, basically, her whole thing is like women are their own people and beauty matters for its own sake and is important to revolution. And mm -hmm. the, the right to beauty was as important to her as the right to freedom. This is actually what she's most famous for today is there's a paraphrasing of a quote of hers. The paraphrasing is, if I can't dance, it's not my revolution. So by beauty, she means like joy. Totally. Yeah. And like I aesthetic like stuff too. Like she's like into sure. like literature and art and like, you know, yeah. she's like, these things matter. Yeah. Quality of life matters. Yeah, absolutely. So one day she's dancing at this party and these like very serious man revolutionaries are chastising her for being too, uh, I don't know, free and enjoying her life. And she said to them, or she said later about them, I guess. I did not believe that a cause which stood for a beautiful ideal for anarchism, for release and freedom from conventions and prejudice, should demand the denial of life and joy. I insisted that our cause could not expect me to become a nun and that the movement should not be turned into a cloister. And so this is kind of how she ends up kind of on the, well, she's been part of the sexual liberation kick the entire actual fucking time. But, and what's interesting is that like all of this stuff has been a big part of the left and anarchism the entire time, but it was not being talked about as much by like the big name, important figureheads of history. Right. But the people who were actually like just trying to be revolutionaries and shit were all about this stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. The newspapers and communities were constantly discussing it and they did more than discuss sex constantly. And at one point, this older European anarchist, Peter Kropotkin, he's like, anarchist Santa Claus. I don't know. He visits and he asks why the newspapers are wasting so much time talking about sex here in America. Emma Goldman said, all right, dear comrade, when I have reached your age, the sex question may no longer be of importance to me, but it is now. <laughs> <laughs> love her. I love her. I know. So Okay, it's not just that she was down to fuck or whatever, but it's that she realized they were fighting for a society based on cooperation, and the cooperation is born out of love. And love, family relationships, all of that, what those things look like is of paramount importance. And she was also down to fuck. 
She, her quote is, Sure. Can there be anything more outrageous than the idea that a healthy, grown woman full of life and passion must deny nature's demand, must subdue her most intense craving, undermine her health and break her spirit, must stunt her vision, abstain from the depth and glory of sex experience until a, quote, good man comes along to take her unto himself as a wife? Totally fine with sex before marriage. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. But she wasn't part of the suffrage movement. Because mm-hmm. she didn't like states. She considered the right to vote to be a distraction. And she mm-hmm. also saw that a lot of the, the American suffragettes were very Puritan in flavor at this point, especially at this point. As a block, women supported the Comstock laws, actually, even though Comstock fucking hated women. The voting block of some of the first women to vote in America also disenfranchised sex workers and supported prohibition. And... Emma Goldman was against the prohibition movement, the banning of alcohol sales. She said, quote, it sanctions the spread of drunkenness among men and women of the rich class, yet keeps vigilant watch on the only place left to the poor man. Basically saying, like, when you make shit illegal, the rich people get to do it and the poor people don't. Yeah. Yeah. All right. One more quote. It's not the Latin. We'll pretend it's one more quote. Her feminism can be summed up in her own quote. Her development, her freedom, her independence must come from and through herself, first by asserting herself as a personality and not as a sex commodity, second by refusing the right of anyone over her body, by refusing to bear children unless she wants them, by refusing to be a servant to God, the state, society, the husband, the family, etc., by making her life simpler but deeper and richer. So I like her. I like what she has to say. And she is incapable of not running afoul of the law, which <laughs> is fair since she, her whole purpose is to do away with the concept of a society based on top-down laws. Yeah, yeah. In 1893, she was incited for, I'm sorry, she was arrested for inciting a riot because she'd um, incited a riot. (laughs) She told a crowd of 3,000 hungry people, this is during a whole bunch of uh, hunger and starvation was happening in the U.S. She told the crowd, demonstrate before the palaces of the rich, demand work. If they do not give you work, demand bread. If they deny you both, take bread. It's like in feudal England, all the working class people rising up and showing at the gates of the wealthy landowners, you know, the lords and demanding. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And when she was arrested for, for this, she was arrested like a week later. They caught up with her in, I think, Philly, even though I think the speech had been in New York. The arresting officer has her on a train and basically says, like, snitch on your buds and we'll drop your charges, which um, Emma Goldman does not do. Yeah, I was going to say, I doubt she takes that deal. Yeah, no, instead she throws a glass of ice water into his face. Nice. She gets sentenced to a year in prison, which she served. The press dubbed her the modern Joan of Arc for this. It just increased her fame and reach. And like when she gets out of jail, it helps with her speaking tours. And it it also fucks up with her health. And I'm sure it sucked. But like overall, it it worked sort of in her favor in a way. But... The next time she goes to jail, or the next time I'm going to say about the time she goes to jail, did not work in her favor. In 1901, an anarchist named Leon Chogosh assassinated President William McKinley. And this was not a very uh, strategic move, to say the least. Chogosh wasn't really part of the anarchist movement, even though he, he was an anarchist. I'm not trying to claim he wasn't, but he was, he was a poor man, the son of Polish immigrants who had had enough of the whole system and decided basically to go shoot a guy. He'd actually been kept out of the anarchist movement because he kept sketching people out. He basically would like show up and be like, hey, guys, you want to like do some crime? 
Oh, I love that description of someone <laughs> sketching all the anarchists out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So no one wants to play with him. So he just goes, he finds McKinley and he shoots him in the gut. And this kills McKinley. It, it takes a couple of weeks, I think. It, McKinley eventually dies of an infection caused by the wound. Yeah. And the left in general, including a lot of the anarchists, rush to distance themselves from, from Leon Shogash. Yeah. Yeah. Emma Goldman, though, she refused to condemn his action, even though she didn't she didn't think it was a good idea. And she'd also got blamed for inspiring him because under investig under probably torture, he said that he had like seen Emma Goldman speak, you know. But Emma Goldman saw the assassination as cause and effect. You treat people like shit long enough, someone might fucking yeah. shoot you. And this time the press call her the high priestess of anarchy. Oh it's also not God. a bad title. Not at all. That's actually a very sick title, but yeah. of course they did that. Yeah. Chogosh was tried and executed. He, he never repented. His last words were, I killed the president because he was the enemy of the good people, the good working people. I am not sorry for my crime. I am sorry I could not see my father uh, because his father mm. didn't come to see him because his father was like, sorry, kid. Yeah. You did this, this yourself. Is, yeah. 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 Emma Goldman was arrested for this. There was no evidence connecting her to the crime, and after two weeks in custody, she was released. And once again, this assassination fucks the anarchist movement up. Um, Roosevelt comes into office and basically says, all right, I'm going to fuck up all the anarchists and everyone who is sympathetic to the anarchists. That's like his first thing. Which, I mean, fair, yeah. right? They're the people who are just killed his predecessor. He, he passes the Anarchist Exclusion Act of 1903 that says you can't immigrate to the U.S. if you're an anarchist. And because of this crackdown and basically how wildly unpopular the assassination was, anarchism goes from it used to be the leading leftist tendency within the United States, and it falls behind a more reformist socialism after this as people are like, oh, yeah, that's. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. But... Yeah. It, it kind of I, I'm, I'm with Emma Goldman. I'm like, it is what it is. You know, it's like. I mean, I am too, but yeah. I mean, when, when you're sketching it out, like it makes sense how public perception of what uh, being an anarchist means or why is lost because of, you know, the way it's framed. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. I, totally. But yeah, I am also. But I think that a lot of people identify as that. Like now it's a conversation that comes up a lot on yeah. Twitter, a different version of it, let's say. But, yeah. you know, it, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I, I do tend to agree. I'm like, yeah, well, he was a bad man, yeah. and I don't support <laughs> this person's actions per se, per se, because I think it's a bad yeah. idea. But if you're a bad person and you're doing that, what do you expect? Yeah, totally. Um, someone might snap. <laughs> I remember during the, I think it was like the 2008 financial crash instead of the more recent financial crash or whatever, and there were all of these like headlines in the UK that were like. Some people broke a bank owner's window, like at his bed at his house. Right. And I'm kind of like, I'm not like that. It doesn't solve anything, right? To go and break this bank owner's window. Very, but what do you? Yeah. What do you fucking want? You just like you just fucking drove millions of people into poverty, people and they broke your window. Powerless. Yeah. Like yeah. I mean, the same conversation during Black Lives yeah. Matter here. Uh, and protests and the way everything was yeah. framed, uh, especially here in Los Angeles. And you, yeah, totally. Yeah. Los Angeles, a lot of history of that. What do you yeah. expect? No, I do feel bad. For, I do. I feel bad for that mom and pop restaurant. I'm really glad they have insurance yeah. to cover it. But these 
the that's it's going to suck to clean up this mess. But eyes on the prize, much more important. And why are people upset anyway? Yeah, no, totally. So Emma Goldman goes on to do. I mean, she does so much shit that I could easily do a two parter just on her. Uh, She travels around. She lectures in midwives, midwife, midwiferies, uh, helps deliver babies. She midwifes it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nothing mid about, I'm going to try and use slang just to make everyone cringe. Nothing mid about her whiff. Nope. Uh, Brave. Sophie's no, giving me the baby stop. No, okay. I liked it. No, I think I support. Okay. Full, okay. full support. All right. This is safe space, I think. <laughs> yeah, no one's listening. <laughs> she she falls in love with this hobo doctor guy who specializes in treating venereal disease named Ben yeah. Reitman. She runs a magazine called Mother Earth that combines anarchism with cultural issues, literary criticism, poetry, and the arts in general. Her politics shift away from individual acts of violence and away even from mass movements and towards popular education. She starts talking to a more middle-class crowd, which pisses off a lot of her friends, but she stays 100% down for the cause, so whatever. People can fucking hate, whatever. And then, in 1914, the, the reason we're talking about her in today's episode, the modern birth control movement kicks off. And Emma Goldman jumps in from the ground floor. The birth control movement got its name from a, a guy named Otto Bobstie, but it was popularized by Margaret Sanger and also by the anarchists. And Emma Goldman did a lot for birth control, but she didn't suffer for it like some of the other people I'm talking about. She suffered for other things. It, everything was all tied together for her. All of these different issues boiled down to oppression and people having power over other people. So in 1915, she goes on a nationwide speaking tour talking about contraception, which was not legal for her to do. She distributes texts written by her hobo boyfriend and also by Margaret Sanger about how to not have kids, which is also not legal. So on February 11th, she was arrested for violating the Comstock laws. That fucking asshole. Back in the story. Fucking asshole. I'd almost forgotten about him. I know. I know. He'll die in four years. Um, Yeah. She refuses to pay a $100 fine, and she spends two weeks in prison. And, I mean, I don't want to go to prison for two weeks, but it doesn't compare with what other folks ended up facing. So, No, no of course. To fast forward her life after birth control, she gets involved in, and by that I mean there's several more paragraphs about her. I really love her. There's so much cool shit she did. But she gets involved in the Anti-Conscription League in New York um, during World War I because everything is better when you add league to the end of your cause's <laughs> name. It definitely makes it more official. Or fun sounding, maybe. And you probably have capes. You know, I thought you said cakes, but but capes, capes you know, and capes. I'll take both. Yeah. Yeah. Once it's a society, you move up from capes to cloaks, I think. Fair. And honestly, who wants to hang out with those types? I, I know. I know. The league is where the fun's at. They play. Yep. They get drunk. Yeah, they eat cake. They eat cake. Let us eat cake, they scream as they <laughs> eat cake. In their fancy capes. Yeah. Oh, I'm. Oh, this is going to tie in well. Okay. <laughs> so as much as the government doesn't like birth control, it really does not like anti-militarism. She's basically going around saying, hey, you don't have to, you can fight conscription. You don't have to go fight in this war. On June 15th, 1917, her and Berkman, he's still around. They're still pals. Uh, they get arrested in an office full of propaganda. And eh, eh, according to the 1917 New York Times article about their arrest, she asked if she could go put on a more presentable outfit for her arrest. Okay. They say yes. <laughs> she goes upstairs to her room and she comes out wearing a royal purple gown. 
Because <laughs> um, that's the kind of lady she is. Oh, I love yeah. it. I love it. And then, even though she did not, to my knowledge, invent a system of dates uh, to replace A.D. and B.C., she did represent herself and Berkman in court. And possibly because she didn't come up with a system of dates to replace A.D. and B.C., she fails. Uh, she does not successfully defend them in court. They lose, and they both get two years in prison. Two years. Man, he spent a lot of time in jail. Yeah. While Emma Goldman's in prison, she makes friends with another anarchist woman who's in prison for smuggling bombs onto a train to go, not to blow up the train, but to go blow up a, I don't know, somebody important probably, and also a socialist woman. And they team up despite their differences, their different political ideas, and they they fight for better conditions for the inmates, um, which is the TV show that I want to watch out of all of yeah. this. No, I mean, this one's good too. Yeah. They get out. They get caught up in the first Red Scare pretty much immediately. Sure. Um, Fuck, can't get a break here. No, they really can't. Along with more than 500 other anarchists and communists, they get deported. I think it's something like the Palmer Raids. I think it's something like 10,000 people get arrested. And basically, it's like, you're a filthy commie. Get the fuck out of the country. Mm -hmm. They get sent back to Russia, where both of them are originally from. And they're actually excited about this, right? Because it's 1919 and Russia is having a revolution. And they're like... We like revolutions. Maybe this one will be yeah. good. So they go there and they're actually, again, excited. The The Bolshevik revolution was very like contentious among the left in general. But like overall, even the people who don't like the state, like the anarchists were like, well, let's see where they're going with this. Right. So they get there and then they realize that the Bolsheviks suck. They're they're banning free speech. Workers are in shitty conditions. Yeah. Everyone fighting for better conditions gets fucking branded a counter-revolutionary and thrown in jail. People are getting murdered by the Bolsheviks. All the anarchists are getting rounded up. It just, it sucks. So they get out. And... Sounds like bullshit shit. Oh, yeah. okay, I'm into it. That's no. the best thing ever to come out of this podcast. That sounds sarcastic, okay. but I actually really oh, like okay. it. Right. Okay. Nice. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's another probably bingo thing is uh, Margaret talks shit on Bolshevism. Um, <laughs> and uh, so they wander. Basically, they wander around uh, Canada, Europe, just are like they don't have a place because they don't they can't they're not trying to hang out in Russia. They're not allowed back in the U.S. And they just keep getting kicked out of different places and wandering around. Alexander Berkman dies in 1936. He he takes his own life after a bout of illness and some unsuccessful surgeries. He's basically like, fuck it, I'm in pain. And he decides to end it. Emma Goldman's in a different city. And when she finds out he's dying, he like kind of doesn't. I, I try not to talk about the details of suicide on this show, but he, like, doesn't succeed right away, yeah. right? And he takes a little while for him to die. Um, so he's he's sick, you know, basically. So Emma Goldman yeah. rushes to a different city to to be by his side as he dies. And he recognizes her, but he can't speak. And then he falls into a coma and dies. But then the silver lining to all of this, she's 69 years, or I don't know, she's old. She's in her late 60s at this point. A few weeks after Berkman dies, Emma Goldman gets to go live her dream, the thing that she's been fighting for her entire life, because the Spanish Civil War uh, alumni of the show, Spanish Civil War, has broken out. Shout out. And she moves to Barcelona and she spends three years living in an anarchist society made up of millions of people. Wow. Um, and she told the workers there, this actually gets to your point earlier, you're talking about people kind of misunderstanding anarchism and Shogosh not helping that. She tells the workers yeah. there, your revolution will destroy forever the notion that anarchism stands for chaos. Yeah. 
And I, I wish that that were, it does prove it to anyone who looks at the Spanish Civil War, but it, that history gets buried. That's really beautiful that she got to go there and experience that. I know. It makes me really happy. Like, Did she die there? No, she died shortly after um, the, the fascists take over. She flees to Canada. Ugh, fuck. And fucking fascists. I know. They're fucking everywhere. Um, and she dies, I think, within a year or something, or less than that, of, of having to leave uh, Spain. But if I make it to 70 and get to spend most of the last three years of my life living in an, anarch- in an anarchist society, yeah. like, count me fucking happy. Especially back then. Yeah, totally. It's a long life, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, in May 1940, she dies from a stroke in Toronto. And the U.S. actually gives permission for her body to be returned to the States. And she's buried next to the Haymarket Martyrs in, in Illinois, the people whose deaths were the reason that she went on this whole crazy journey mm. that was her life. So just need to point out, traveling was so hard. <laughs> also, shout out to her for not dying of TB. Impressive, I know. really. Yeah. Has not died of TB or didn't die of TB, died of something else entirely. Yeah. But the yeah. amount of time and commitment and energy yeah. to uplift your life, to uproot everything and go to all these different environments is pretty wild if you think about it. It took so yeah, much no, work you're right. to achieve your dreams like this, to achieve this yeah. kind of, the, the amount of work to get to... Anyway. Yeah. Is no. she the one that started in Vienna, or am I confusing people's narratives here? Mm, no, she started in um, uh, Lithuania. Lithuania. Who started in Vienna? Oh, I meant I somebody remember. went to Vienna to study midwifery or something. Oh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. This is, mm-hmm. yes, I mean, she just went to that. Vienna. Lithuania, then yeah. in America, and then you're off to Vienna to study, and yeah. then you're coming back, and everything yeah. that's happened since. As a poor since, woman, that's, too. As a poor woman. Woman. Yeah. yeah. At this time. It yeah. just—it really does blow my mind. The sheer magnet, the, the sheer strength of will and fortitude you have to do to accomplish yeah, totally. literally anything, but and not it. die of TB, and yeah. not die of TB. Yeah. And uh, speaking of dying of TB, you know what time it is, Margaret? Yeah, I was trying to come up with. I, I had it all had in my head where I was going to be like, "How do we go with?" Okay, you know who else takes a lot of your time and energy? Advertisers. Oh, yes, true. That is sure the do. truest thing they you've sure ever do. said. And here is some more of that. Hooray. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about history and what a period we're living through right now, specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. 
Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help you understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, catch up on previous seasons, and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week, where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. And we are back, and we have just left Emma Goldman resting comfortably in the ground after a long life in now in Illinois. It's sort of a oh, she deserves of, it. Yeah, it's like kind of a place of pilgrimage. Um, a lot of people go out there and see um, the martyrs and her and Lucy Parsons and all these other people. Yeah. And and so I don't know entirely how much credit Emma Goldman deserves for invigorating the birth control movement because. Everyone likes her so much that anything she touches, people are like, and Emma Goldman was there, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, she went on a, a, a nationwide speaking tour and got arrested for it, right? And, But I, I just literally can't. Other people do know. I'm not saying it's unknown. I'm saying I, I don't know. But she might have been a footnote who gets written into all the stories because everyone thinks she's so cool. Or she might have been a more central player. She had in her hands in a lot of pies. Because she was so good at getting things off the ground, it seems possible that her influence is a huge reason why things got off the ground. But she didn't stay in the particular fight for birth control because she was too busy getting repressed and being kicked out of various countries. Other people stayed in the fight. The most famous of these is the most complicated person going to talk about today, Margaret Sanger. Oh, yeah. I always want to root for a Margaret. Problem yeah. is, is that sure. Fifty percent of the women with um, English or Irish names in history are Margarets. Yeah. And of those 50 percent, another 50 percent are probably bad. Yeah. There's a lot of notably bad ones. Yeah. And Margaret, this Margaret, not not me, Margaret. I'm only doing good things. But you are the exception to the rule. Yeah. This Margaret does both good and bad things. Oh. So Margaret Sanger, uh, most famous as the. For two things. Margaret Sanger is famous as the founder of Planned Parenthood and for being a eugenicist, just to get that out of the way. Uh, And we'll talk about both those things. When she was young, 
she flirted with anarchism briefly and was influenced by it and ran a newspaper called The Woman Rebel, No Gods, No Masters. No Gods, No Masters being a, a common anarchist slogan. But she then moves away from socialism and further into eugenesis. Eugenesis. Mm -hmm. Bad stuff. Eugenicisms. Yeah. Um, she wasn't a white supremacist. Uh, she was actually far from it, but she absolutely helped white supremacism by helping the broader eugenics movement which has done irreparable harm to marginalized people. The, the right wing likes to misrepresent her beliefs and like claim that she was like actively racist, but she, she did not believe in a racial component to eugenics. She fought to stamp out bigotry in the movement and she worked with black, black leaders constantly. Um, but it kind of doesn't matter because intentions. Well, what was she into about? Oh, we'll get to what, it. What part of, okay. Oh, we'll get, we'll to, get it. to it. Um, yeah. Cause because, okay, yeah, well, one of the most complicated things, I actually kind of tried to write this whole thing. At first, I was like, I'm just not going to talk about Margaret Sanger. I'm going to stop everything at, like, 1915. It's hard. And then yeah. I was like, because I, I, because it's so fucking messy. But a thing that I, I learned is that, um, the first time I learned this was a, a little while ago, and it blew my mind. The left was also really into eugenics back in the day. And they were into mm -hmm. different types of eugenics, depending on the, the mm -hmm. leftists. But um, certainly the anti-authoritarian left was into sort of a, eugenics by choice people like if workers choose to have fewer children then the the workers will have more power at the bargaining table because there's fewer of them and the capitalists need them more and shit like that oh weird yeah, yeah. weird is a a really good way to put it but margaret sanger does go beyond that and leaves the non-coercive eugenics which a ton of famous popular people that people avoid talking about as eugenicists were into. It was everywhere. Yeah. It was everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I'm do I'm working on something right now mm -hmm. and the, the person who <laughs> created BMI, it all fed into eugenicists oh, and God. like founded uh -huh. that. You know, I mean yeah. study taking the study of people and finding an average. Yeah. And that's the ideal. But you're of course you're only studying white men. Yeah. And then everything below is underweight and everything above is overweight. And that's is literally our BMI to this God. day, but it was also baked in and, and informed all sorts of eugenicists. And so I, my point being is like, yes, it sneakily is in healthcare and then in public policy, uh, you know, in, in, you know, criminal justice everywhere, all aspects of society. No, totally. Yeah. And, and, and I keep talking about it in history mostly because that's what I, look at but is absolutely you're right like used up to the present day in a lot of ways it usually doesn't use that name anymore right um but but right yeah anywho yeah. yep so margaret sanger she was the child of socialist irish immigrants and like emma goldman she was a nurse practicing on the lower east side of manhattan she illegally distributed information about birth control to people in the tenements and she might have been abortionist at this time but because i read about how she helped women, quote, terminate their pregnancies. But the mm -hmm. other thing is that she was actually fairly anti-abortion, which I had no idea. She only believed in abortion when it was necessary to save the mother's life. Her whole thing about birth control was this way we don't need abortion. Well, right. That is what Planned Parenthood continues to be. It's like, well, we're providing a service which reduces abortions. Yeah. It's Margaret's magazine, The Woman Rebel, that sparks the birth control movement. Or rather, it was Comstock his, in his final act um, his repression of it that sparks the birth control movement. In 1914, the, the year before he died, Anthony Comstock was after her. 
So he's still working in his fucking 70s, fucking asshole. She's a wanted woman. She's facing 20 years in prison for running a magazine. So she decides to do what many wise people have done, and she fucks off out of the country. Sure. She, she goes up to Canada and then gets a forged passport and heads over to England. But the case brings out a ton of supporters, and a real movement starts forming. So she comes home to face the music, stand trial. And the government looked at all of her supporters and were like, oh, fuck this. And they dropped the charges. Wow. Which is why it's good to have a movement behind you. Yeah. And it's also good to be rowdy enough that being behind someone actually makes things matter. Because if, you know, if millions of people march, march oh. to stop the <laughs> invasion of Iraq in 2003, then do shit. Um, it, it really depends on the context here, but... Yeah. Yeah. So, now free. In 1916, she opens the first birth control clinic in the U.S., in, in Brooklyn. And it was open nine days before the cops raid it and arrest the entire staff, including Margaret which makes her even more of a hero. And she uses that fame to start a new magazine called The Birth Control Review, which talks about <laughs> birth control and about eugenics and about sterilizing unfit people. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. It's, it's basically after, as far as I can tell, it's after World War I that she becomes like a eugenicist and starts believing in coercive eugenics. And she leaves socialism and anarchism far behind, falls into this fucking nonsense. and. At the beginning, she started off saying women should be, quote, the absolute mistress of her own body. And then at the end, she talks about wanting a government department that oversees who gets to have babies. Oh, this is bad. This isn't this isn't like light eugenics. This is like eugenics. I know. And like and part of the problem about researching her is that everyone either really likes her or really hates her. And so. If you really like her, you downplay all of her eugenics. And if you really hate her, you play them up or you play up the racist elements of them, right? So it's hard to find out some yeah. of this stuff because it's so biased. But this this thing that she's saying is not particularly controversial. This whole government should decide who gets to fucking have babies. If anything, that's probably least controversial than less controversial than like in birth control. Yeah, well, I mean, actually, and that's like something that I, I kind of don't quite get to in this script because I don't feel like I don't have. I didn't have enough time to like really do it justice, but now I'll pretend to do it justice just now. One of the things <laughs> that I realized is that um, the shift towards birth control, like as soon as like birth control started winning, then the government's like, yeah, yeah, birth control, birth control. We can use it to make the master race, you know? Yeah. And so, I don't know. What, okay. I mean, that was a good point. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um and so it doesn't feel like a coincidence to me, though, that she's moving away from socialism and anarchism as she moves into eugenics. In, in 1920, Margaret Singer called for a birth strike to reduce overpopulation, hoping to avert famine and war, right? But the thing is, is that the, the left, at least now, understands a few things about overpopulation. First, and most importantly, the world isn't lacking in food. The world is lacking in equitable right. distribution of food. Yes. And secondly, something that it, we know this because of actually work of people like Margaret Sanger and Emma Goldman and all these other people, is that when people have access to family planning, it actually does curb population growth. And there's no need for any institution. Absolutely, No institution needs to direct or control it. You literally say, hey, people who are capable of having babies, here's how you choose whether or not to have a baby. And the population levels off. If yeah. that matters to you, that is how it is done. And that is how it is effectively done. Ugh, I get really... I don't know. 
I get worked up about that. I mean, as you should. Yeah. As we all should. I mean, we all know. I know we all relate to this. I mean, it's just, it's wild to be sitting here talking about it still. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, that the, this is still the conversation. And next, birth control is right now, but the next one up is, mm-hmm. I mean, abortion's up right now, but the next up is birth control. Yeah. And it's mad. It feels, I don't like to be careful about language choice, but it truly feels madness. Mm-hmm. Like it's madness. What are we doing? Yeah. It's my body. Yeah. yeah and I mean, it kind of reminds me because I feel like they'll come for birth control and then start continue to do forced sterilization, which we'll get to in a little bit. And it frankly, it reminds me of Nazi Germany, where they specifically were like, actually, Nazi Germany was one of the countries that legalized some abortion because they really wanted unfit people to have abortions. Oh, and uh, yeah. And then, of course. Yeah, of course they did. So anyway. She has an American Birth Control League, which in 1942 becomes Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood today makes it absolutely clear that they disavow Sanger's eugenicist beliefs and is like upfront about being like, this is the incredible amount of harm that those beliefs did. But Sanger dies in 1966, the year after the Supreme Court legalizes birth control, and uh, which I, I believe, and I didn't write this down in my notes, so this is unsourced, um, that that judgment the Supreme Court judgment that legalized birth control relies on a very similar or the same concept as Roe v. Wade, which comes after. But yeah. And so I want to say I'm like glad she got to see birth control become legal, but I only like her in the first act. So I kind of don't give a shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, ultimately you sucked. So, I mean, from a storytelling perspective, sure, we like to see people have payoff for the things they've worked for. And it is undoubtedly a good thing yeah, that absolutely. she worked for. Yep. But the rest of it's bad. So I don't really care about her. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah. like <laughs> It kind of evens out. Yeah. I don't actively hate her, but I don't yeah. like her either. So Yeah, totally. Again, it was, it was funny because like before I started researching this, I was like, oh, God, I'm going to have to fucking I'm going to have to cover Margaret. Sanger. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not looking forward to this. Also, because I like knew that she was involved with the anarchists. And I'm not proud of that. So I'm like, uh, uh, you know. Yeah, you're like, don't give us a bad name. Um, or <laughs> But then it, there's another weird part of me where I, I Planned Parenthood is not perfect, but I'm kind of like, oh, it was cool. Started by someone who used to say no gods, no masters or whatever, you know. No. Um, yeah, it is yeah. cool. So it's both things. Yeah. So she's a good segue to move from talking about the yay, the right to not have children, to the dark legacy of the same fight, the the second fight people had to wage, the right to have children. So yeah. I want to talk about Fannie Lou Townsend Hamer, who is not okay. part of the dark side of the story, or rather the dark side of the story happens to her, but she's fucking awesome. She's cool. People who did cool stuff like no, no, I feel complicated, just no qualifications yeah, yeah. needed. She's up there with Ezra Haywood and Emma Goldman. Like, And she's born on October 6th, 1917 in Mississippi. She's the last of 20 children born to a, a black sharecropping couple. I know. By the time she was six, she was in, working in the fields picking cotton. By the time she was 12, after sixth grade, she quit school for work. Her parents ruled. They taught their kids to be proud to be black. And her mom carried a handgun around to protect her kids from the white landowners who were like often would beat black yeah. kids. Yeah. In in 1961, 
Fanny Lou Hamer had surgery to remove a uterine tumor. And while she was under, the white doctor gave her a hysterectomy without her consent. Mm-hmm. This racist sterilization was really, really fucking common. Fanny coined a word for it, the Mississippi appendectomy. And she later said that in Sunflower County Hospital, I would say that six out of ten of the Negro women that go to the hospital are sterilized with their tubes tied. Yeah. And this shit still happens. Yep. Yep. And after this, she becomes one of the most important figures in the civil rights movement. In 1962, she went on a bus with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to register to vote. All 17 passengers on the bus were refused since they failed literacy tests that were imposed by Jim Crow laws. <laughs> they got pulled over and fined $100 for the nonsense charge that their bus was too yellow, and they weren't allowed to what? leave. Yeah, they, like, I mean, the cops are just like, let's go fuck over those people. They pull over the bus. They're like, hey, your bus is too yellow. I don't know why they have that accent. Loved it. And your bus is too yellow. You got to give us 100 bucks before you can go on your way. Just, I didn't do the calculations like I sometimes do, but it's a lot of fucking money. They, and they, they, they scrape together the money before they're able to leave. She gets home and her boss fires her from her sharecropping job because she was a, you know, dangerous rabble rouser and confiscates a bunch of her and her husband's property. This did not stop her. In 1963, she sat at a whites-only restaurant and was beaten so badly in jail by cops that she never fully recovered. And that did not stop her. In 1964, she helped organize Freedom Summer, and hundreds of college students of various races showed up to help register black voters in the South, including podcast alumni Heather Booth. I get really excited trying to tie them all the podcast episodes into one thing. Yeah. But they're all, it's all connected. All the cool people fucking interweave. Yeah. The, the person who founded the Jane Collective came down for Freedom Summer, which had been organized, oh. including by part by Fanny. And she kept working the political system. She even wound up alongside two others as part of the first group of black women to run for Congress. But eventually she soured on political change, which just kept fucking not working. So she started doing shit that I think is even cooler. To, to quote the writer Deborah Michaels, Frustrated by the political process, Hamer turned to economics as a strategy for greater racial equality. In 1968, she began a pig bank to provide free pigs to black farmers to breed, raise, and slaughter. A year later, she launched the Freedom Farm Cooperative, buying up land that black people could own and farm collectively. With the assistance of donors, including famed singer Harry Belafonte, she purchased 640 acres and launched a co-op store, boutique, and sewing enterprise. Cooperative economics also are one of these things that tie through all of it. Even the idea of, like, cooperative sewing enterprises was actually a big part of the Russian nihilists when they weren't trying to blow up the czar. They started, really? yeah, their whole thing, they read this book. Um, it was actually one of the books that Emma Goldman really was inspired by. It's called What is to be Done? Not the later one by Lenin or the later one by Stalin, but the first one by the guy whose name I don't remember. Um, <laughs> um, it basically is like, hey, you should start sewing cooperatives, and that's how you should raise up enough money to start having an economy where wow. all take care of each other. And I don't believe that Fanny was necessarily like inspired by that or with the through line or whatever, but it's instead it's something that people figure out is that cooperative economics and like collectively creating economies is um, a really good way to protect yeah. wealth in communities that have the wealth taken away from them on a regular basis. Throughout her life, she faces an endless slew of racist attacks. Uh, racists poison their farm animals when she's a kid. She, people try to drive by shooter, And she's this short, thick black woman with a thick Southern accent and no formal education. 
When she was supposed to speak as a Democratic delegate in 1964, President Lyndon Johnson like personally blocked her from speaking because he didn't want a, you know, uneducated black woman or whatever on stage. And when she was given an honorary degree, prominent assholes, uh, both white and black, were pissed off because she didn't deserve it because she wasn't fully literate. But other black leaders believed in her. God. Malcolm X believed in her. And it was while speaking alongside Malcolm X in Harlem in 1964 that she gave her most famous speech in which she said, I've been tired so long. Now I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. And we want to change. Uh -huh. She rules. She, she dies of breast cancer in 1977, only 59 years old. And there's, oh, there's still people doing that economic work she started. The Federation of Southern Cooperatives is a coalition of black farmers. It's been around for 55 years. It's still around. They work to keep farmland in black and cooperative hands throughout the South. Wow. And But she's also one of uncountable number of people, mostly people of color, who were coerced or tricked into sterilization. Mental patients, prisoners, women on welfare, uh, people who showed up at the hospital for completely unrelated surgery. The state just was fucking wild about population control. And they would be like, the board of eugenics would decide. It's so creepy. Yeah. And it, it's, it's explicitly racist. Yeah, I know. I know. It's like, it's one of those things where you kind of like, the fact that it like, I mean, it still happens, but the fact that it was like even more above board happening like 50 years ago. Yeah, that was common. It's hard for me to wrap my head around. It's so evil, you know? Yeah, because it was just so recent. Yeah. How recently our thinking collectively was just very medieval. It blows my mind. And yeah, it's very important to note that it does still happen. Yeah. Um, there was a huge thing recently, I guess. I don't even know. Time just feels like a vacuum. But expose about all the migrants yep. in, in custody who underwent forced hysterectomy. Yep. Um, and in prisons, women, uh, you know, or, or people with reproductive people. That's not the phrase. That is not the word. Yeah. I am tired. But you get my point. Uh -huh. People, people, can give people birth, who, yeah. who give birth. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah. For hysterectomies. It's yeah. it's sickening. And now it's just not talked about yeah. that it happens. Totally. And it was um, women were targeted more than men. There were men also forced to, um, you know, have forced sterilization, but not as much. White poor folks weren't exempt, but they were targeted uh, at least three times less often. And it's, it's fucking genocide. Like the North yeah. Carolina Eugenics Board had a whole plan to, quote, breed out black people by sterilizing black men. <sighs> and uh, in case you were wondering, the U.S. was the first country to get really excited about compulsory sterilization, like yeah. more than 100, like 120 years ago or something. So it's, it's not really a surprise that the black power movement in the late 60s, early 70s was not actually excited about birth control and abortion. Yeah. For a while in the 1970s, somewhere between a quarter and half of indigenous women who came into the Indian health services for healthcare services, for any healthcare services, were sterilized. Uh, Latinx people faced this. In 1978, a group of Mexican-American lawyers filed a class action lawsuit in Los Angeles, and they actually used Roe v. Wade, basically saying that Roe v. Wade should protect the right to bear children as well as not bear children. Huh. Um, because okay. all these people, like sometimes it was like forced, like you're tricked and they just do it while you're, while you're under. Sometimes they like, here, sign yeah. these forms, sign these forms. Okay, you sign the forms uh -huh. and you didn't read it or you can't read it. It's in English or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, so they sue 
using Roe v. Wade, and they they lose. And the ruling was racist as fuck. To quote a... Of course it was. Yeah. To quote a a 2021 essay by um, Emily Mosh uh, in the Immigration and Human Rights Law Review, the judge wrote that the plaintiff's emotional distress was not caused by the sterilizations, but rather by the patient's cultural background as immigrants from rural Mexico (gasps) who accredited a woman's worth to her ability to raise a large family. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, those poor dears. They've lost their value in their, in their society. Yeah, in our society, the value is for sterilization. That's disgusting. Yep. Apologies for some of this shit started showing up in the early 2000s. Uh, occasionally, laws would be repealed, that the stuff that had allowed the involuntary sterilization. Early Virginia 2000s? Was the f- uh-huh, uh-huh. Jesus fucking Christ. Well... And Washington State still has the law in the books. Ah! And it, and almost no compensation is handed out when they're like, oh, sorry about that. And their excuse was, well, most of those people are dead. And like, we didn't really keep records of it. So how would we even find the people to give money to who we did this horrible thing to? Oh, my God. That's awful. And it, as you pointed out, it is still happening today, to, especially to prisoners and people held by ICE. Um, I, I try not to end on doom and gloom. So I want to say kind of similar to the last episode that these people who fought, they, they didn't lose because we're still in yeah. this fight and we haven't lost. And we, we win every time we protect any given individual's right to choose whether to have a kid or not in either direction. And, yeah. and all of the bad shit still happening. But, but. Yeah, it's really important because we wouldn't first off, we wouldn't still be having this fight if it wasn't for their work. But we've remarked several times over these two episodes about how it wasn't even that long ago. And I think it's really important to note that because it wasn't that long ago. And look at how different it is now. (laughs) And I mean, it's not that it's fixed by a long shot. Of course not. But you move the ball forward and I find hope in that. Does that make sense? Like, even though it feels hopeless right yeah. now that we're still, but, but that you can see how progress has happened. Now I'm thinking about like, well, it's happening too <laughs> slow, but we're still well, in the like, fight. That's the takeaway. I think it's, I, I'm a little like more progress neutral in that. I think a lot of times we win some and lose some and we get ahead yeah. for a while and we get knocked back for a while. Like yeah. I read sometimes about like, places in medieval Europe where it was totally chill to be a trans woman and I'm get, get jealous, you know? Um, yeah. And yeah. then like, but like, I'm going to use that throwaway line and people are going to be like, well, what is it? I'm kind of speaking very vaguely here. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we like win by fighting. We win mm-hmm. by making our lives better and the lives of people around us better. And by, yeah, by just like not letting them do this shit is sometimes yeah, what are we going to do? Let them? Yeah. yeah. It's like, well, I can't not do something. Yeah. I still get to go up, get up tomorrow and keep doing it. So yeah. even if it's exhausting, you got to keep. And, and that gives me, and there's hope in that. Yeah, totally. And as Emma Goldman taught us, we can still dance and have fun. We can still dance and have fun. Find the beauty. Yeah. Uh, what a delightful journey this has been, Thanks. Margaret. Thank you so much. Again. I had written into the script saying we needed... um. We needed Katie to take a stab at a speech about why we can but still fight for it. this. But Katie did it unprompted. Yeah. yeah thank you. <laughs> oh, 
oh, wow. Yeah, no, I know my role. That's what I was smirking <laughs> about. <laughs> That's Silently. really funny. I was like, look at Katie being Katie. You just, you just <laughs> manipulated me into doing it. Just kidding. You just wrote a show that, that brought me to that spot where I felt inspired to give you that. So okay, that's a, that's a testament to your to your work <laughs> thanks, here. Thanks. And speaking of, of of other people's work, Katie, do you have any plugs you'd like to plug here? For a second, it's like Katie, plug other people's work. Yeah, sure. You can check out our podcast, Even More News, and our YouTube channel, Some More News. I'm on Twitter, Katie Stoll. That seems like a good place to start. That's solid. And uh, Margaret, anything you want to plug at the end here? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Magpie Killjoy if you want to see me participate begrudgingly in discourse. And <laughs> you can um, fake begrudgingly. And you can follow me on Instagram at Margaret Killjoy if you want to see pictures of my dog and videos of me playing hurdy-gurdy and other weird shit. Oh, you're getting a follow today. Hooray! <laughs> I have a book coming out called We Won't Be Here Tomorrow, which ironically comes out after tomorrow, like September 20th, in fact, um, working against the own. I'm going to stop trying to make puns out of the title. Of the book. <laughs> but you can you can probably pre-order it by the time you're listening through AK Press. And if not, it'll be soon. That's exciting. Congratulations. Thanks. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, another story of Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts on Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. You can rent a car, a house, even that little black party dress. So why not rent the stuff you need for your home, too? The place to do it is errands. Choose from thousands of new products from the brands you love, online or in store. Pick a payment plan that fits your budget and pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But if life changes, you can return it anytime or even upgrade it with something new. Rent what you need. It's better at errands. Approval not guaranteed. Restrictions apply. See store for details.